The message this morning is entitled uh, Conquest, Not Compromise. Conquest, Not Compromise. The kind of conquest that we're talking about is not the kind of conquest that's going on in Afghanistan this week uh, and in these days. That kind of violent, militant conquest. That's not the kind of conquest that the Lord has in mind. One day when he returns, he will bring all things to a conclusion. He will eradicate every last trace of unrighteousness and rebellion in this world. But for now, he set a task for the church. And that is conquest through the preaching of the gospel. Conquest through lives handed over wholesale to him and his lordship. Notice I said conquest, not compromise. So the message is all about how Christ wants us to know his victory. Wants us to know conquest in our lives. Wants us not to be compromising. Not to be giving ground to the enemy. Not to be giving territory uh, to him when he has already accomplished all things for us. The series, if you remember, is entitled... Ready for the return of the King. Are you ready? Well, Jesus wants us to be ready for his return. The Apostle John wants us to be ready for his return. And that's why he's writing this letter to the churches. And the message this morning is from Jesus to the church at Ephesus. But it's also to all churches throughout the church age. How do we know that? Well... If you've been with us for the previous two sessions, you know the vision that John is presented with of this risen and reigning Christ. He is reigning over all churches. And in each of the messages, we're given a reminder of that vision, of that universally reigning Christ. So he is reigning over all things, and we're reminded of that fact with each of these little messages to the seven churches. Remember the symbolism of seven, completeness, representing the churches throughout the church age. So how is this message relevant to us? We ought to be asking ourselves. As I say, John has begun his letter by casting a vision of the risen and glorified Christ as God of all glory and the preeminent Lord of all. What was the purpose of him casting that vision? We have to know the significance of the challenge that exists between our God, the contrast that exists between our God and the many, many false gods of the world. In the first century, when John is writing, the cult of worshipping the Roman emperor was almost 200 years old. And it had all started in the same province in which These churches are found, province of Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. The province uh, was where the birth of the imperial cult really started in in the form in which it's found at the time when John is writing. He's writing, of course, to churches that he's visited. He's writing to churches for whom he has oversight for whom he has pastoral responsibility, along with the other apostles, along with the other bishops and overseers uh, established by the apostles. 
And so this is the context into which he's writing. Okay? I want us to, to see how relevant, to see how real this teaching is. It's not some abstract prophecy. It's not, not some strange, mystical prophecy that we can struggle to interpret. It's truth and it's light for God's church here and now, as it was in the first century. Before we begin in earnest, I want us to just to note the structure of the messages to the churches. Those of you who know will know that there are seven churches, there are seven messages which we will be exploring uh, in the coming days. And we're going to be looking at the first of them, the message to the church at Ephesus today. First, you will notice in common uh, that there is an addressee. So uh, Christ says, to the angel of the church at, wherever it is, write. And this is his message, which then unfolds. Secondly, there's a reference to Christ, uh, described in wondrous glory in the first chapter's vision. So that's that link back to the first chapter. Okay, so this is the Christ who is writing the message to the churches. The Christ who rules over all. The Christ who is uh, standing in glory and judging and ruling the world. The one who died and rose again for the sins of the world. Thirdly, we're reminded that Christ knows all things. He knows the churches. He knows the church at Ephesus. And when we say he knows the church, we don't mean he knows the church building. We know where, you know, Friends Baptist Chapel is on Whitmore Way. It means he knows the church. He knows the people. He knows each and every one of us intimately. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us better than our spouses know us. He knows us better than our children know us. He knows us. Fourthly, there's an evaluation. How many of you like evaluations or, or appraisals? Anyone, anyone enjoy appraisals? I, I think appraisals are strange things, aren't they? Did, hold on, did I see a hand? Was that, yeah, there is a hand. Michael. We need to have a chat, brother. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, know, I know for a fact that Michael's been getting some very good appraisals in recent, recent times. By the grace of God, he's shaping you into a, into a, a, a real asset for any country, uh, company or for any family, uh, for any church. Praise God. Uh, but appraisals are funny things, aren't they, right? Whether you're receiving an appraisal or whether you're giving an appraisal, they're uncomfortable, right? They're difficult times, aren't they? No one really likes to do it. I think Christ likes to do it. Why? Because Christ doesn't want us to stay in our mess. Christ knows what we can be. He knows our potential. He knows what we will be. And he wants us to grab a hold of that inheritance. He wants us to realise it sooner rather than later. So Christ... Christ loves to give an appraisal. And when we look at his appraisal of the church at Ephesus, we'll see how balanced he is. We'll see how generous he is and how patient he is. It's not just the church at Ephesus that's patient. It's Jesus Christ himself. 
So Christ gives his, his appraisal, uh, much more detailed, much more honest and fair than any of us could ever hope to give of anyone else. Fifthly, um, you see warnings and promises. Warnings and promises. What Christ will do, either to punish compromise or to reward conquerors. And remember, we're only conquerors in him. He is the conqueror. He is the one who helps us to become conquerors. In fact, according to Paul's message, we become more than conquerors. Right? We're not just conquerors, we're more than conquerors. Right? So remember that whenever you think of conquerors, right, think of William the Conqueror. Right? He's a great name from history, isn't he? Became, was a duke, became a king. Which of us could hope to do more than that? Well, in Christ, you will do more than that. Amen? Praise God. Warnings and promises. What Christ will do either to punish compromise or to reward conquerors. And then finally, in the message, uh, it's closed off by a call to listen. He who has an ear to listen, listen. Pay attention. So as a preacher, I'm going to say pay attention. Pay attention and listen. Not because I'm preaching, but because Christ has spoken. He's spoken to the churches and he's speaking to us today. Praise God. So let's read, shall we, from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nic Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes or conquers... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Praise God. Do you like that appraisal? Would you like to receive a letter like that from Christ himself? Hands up who would like to receive a letter like that from Christ. There's a few meek hands. Well, let me tell you this. You have received this letter from Christ. This letter is from him to you. So let's, let's see what he's saying. Let's unpack it together. Uh, I've got three points and we'll be considering works, okay? Works or deeds, right? Three different types of works or deeds. First of all, evil works. Secondly, good works. Thirdly, godly work. Evil works, good works, and godly work. 
Firstly, evil works. <clears throat> the Nicolaitans. Who's heard of the Nicolaitans before? Well, if you've read Revelation 2, you'll have heard of the Nicolaitans before, and that's the only place that they're mentioned in Scripture. Um, and some of you who, who are familiar with the term will perhaps know uh, how tricky it is to put our finger exactly on these people and to really understand them with a great degree of detail. But there are things that we can gather about them from what is said in chapter 2. What is said here in this first letter to Ephesus, uh, but then what is also mentioned uh, later on in the chapter. Um, these Nicolaitans, um, literally people who are following uh, Nikolai, some guy called Nikolai, who, who had started a sect, started a following within the church, uh, they were uh, promoting division, and not only division, but also licentiousness. Okay, Pastor Ben, what does licentiousness mean? Well, it means uh, morally questionable activity, sexual immorality, uh, party fever, uh, a very relaxed, uh, easygoing attitude towards uh, sinful behaviour. These Nicolaitans are there promoting these things, uh, along with division among the body of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Even if they weren't the worst offenders, there was a strong temptation to compromise with the culture around them through what the Nicolaitans are promoting. We can understand, surely, what this is like for us today. It's very easy, for example, for us to adopt theology and ethical views which fit the world around us so that we avoid disagreements with our work colleagues our neighbours, or even perhaps our family members. If we just accept same-sex marriage, transgender ideology, and polyamory, if we just adopt the mantras of our age, that all religions worship the same God, that the consumer is king, that all people are equal in every respect, if we embrace all these assumptions of our culture, we'll be alright somehow. That's the temptation. That's what the Nicolaitans are doing in the first century. They're compromising with the culture. And it's very easy for us to do. I've mentioned about equality, uh, the dogma that our culture says all people are equal in every respect. I just want to make one point, one thing clear. All people are created in God's image all therefore have innate dignity and worth. They are precious to God. But all people's beliefs and worldviews are not all equally valid. They are not all equally true. They are not all equally healthy and helpful to people. All people's attitudes to their lives and their priorities and their contributions are not all of equal worth. We need to lose the lies of our culture. I think the truth is that very few people really believe these lies anyway. We all have our own standards of, of judging and, and realising what's not equal. And yet we somehow blindly 
go on repeating the mantra of our culture. Sadly, most people do not know the truth because they have not discovered their first love, the central love of anyone who is to know the truth, because the truth is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people are chasing the fleeting pleasures of the world. But why would those who have been saved by Christ, why would they turn away from him and chase after the same broken, stinking things of the earth? As Jesus himself said in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Friends, compared to many on this earth, we have gained the whole world. Let's understand, compared to many on this earth, we have gained the whole world. We may feel, well, we don't quite have what our neighbours got. We don't quite have what the rich and famous have got. This is why the cult of celebrity is so dangerous. Because it gives us this false idea of what we ought to attain, what we ought to have. And so we continue chasing after them as if they can ever provide satisfaction for us. Why should we, the people of Christ, chase after these broken, stinking things? And so Jesus says, the church at Ephesus, he hates the works, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Literally, those who follow Nikolai, as I've said. Not a good man to be. I don't know if any of you remember um, the Left Behind series of many years ago, uh, all about the end of the world. Slightly questionable eschatology, but um, the Left Behind series. There's a number of books all about Revelation. And... The Antichrist there, his name was Nikolai. And I don't think it's any coincidence that they chose Nikolai for his name. Because it's a surefire route to hell. But thankfully for the church at Ephesus, they also hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Notice, they hate the practices, they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And we also should hate the practices of modern day Nicolaitans too. Notice what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. We should hate the practices and the works of the Nicolaitans. We don't hate the Nicolaitans. We struggle with every breath to save as many as we can by the grace of Almighty God. Amen? We must love people and seek their salvation from their corrupt practices, knowing that oftentimes we have a plank in our own eye. So what else will Jesus say to the church at Ephesus? Their works are not evil, are they? Let's consider good works. Jesus sends a message of commendation for the church at Ephesus. 
You know, let's take the positives. Whenever we're having an appraisal, we take the positives, don't we? Or often we just start off with the positives and then uh, go to the negatives, right? And so let's start with the, with the positives or continue with the positives. Jesus commended them for hating the works of the Nicolaitans and he continues to commend them. And it shouldn't perhaps surprise us because the church at Ephesus is a famous church. We have Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, so we know the quality and the content of the apostolic teaching that they've received. It's apparent also that the Apostle John and numerous other significant church leaders visited that church in Ephesus. If you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you will perhaps remember that, as is typical for Paul's letters, the first half is full of wonderful theological foundational truth. Who are we? Who is God? And what has he done to set us free from our sin through Christ? Then the second half of the letter to the Ephesians is, who are we as a church? How do we live as Christians in families and in community? Wonderful stuff. Perhaps Ephesians is one of your favourite books. I hope it is. But the letter of the Ephesians is one of the places which we, where we most keenly learn that we're in a great spiritual war for the souls of humanity. Chapter 6. You see, World War I was not the Great War. It was called the Great War. But then a few years later they had the Second World War. World War I was not the Great War. Friends... The great war is the spiritual war for the human soul. Have you realised that you are engaged in a great conflict? Have you realised, however old you are this morning, that you are engaged in a great spiritual conflict? Because the sooner we realise that there's a war going on, not just a war out there, not just a war in Afghanistan, but a war right here, knocking at your door and even in your heart. So have you realised that you're engaged in this great conflict? Abby and Michael, they've realised that they're engaged in this great conflict. So they realise that they need the champion, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to stand with them, to guide them through, to help them with every battle that they face. How are you doing this morning? Are you conquering? If Jesus is your life and your love priority, if he is head and shoulders above any other concerns, then you are conquering this morning. Praise God. Through John's letter, Jesus tells the church at Ephesus, and remember, let's remember, Ephesus was a city at the heart of the cult not only of the emperor, but of the false god Artemis. Remember in the Acts of the Apostles, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, that false goddess. And Jesus says to them, I know your works, your toil and patient endurance. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, 
and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Commendation from Jesus. Who wouldn't love to hear Jesus say that to them? Hardworking, patient, enduring, resisting evil, exercising discernment over false apostles. Marvellous. Surely a church that's scoring so highly would just sail through. Well, not if they've lost sight of the captain of the ship. What if he's fallen overboard? Again, God's word makes it plain that without the love of God, without his justice delivered in Christ, our works, says the prophet Isaiah, are like filthy rags. Isaiah 64 verse 6. Filthy rags. If we're not saturated by the blood of Christ, if we're not consumed by him, and that's what this, that's what this Paul here says. Those who go through this, these waters are saying publicly that they are saturated, that they are convinced by the message of Jesus. They're not, they're not hoping to be convinced. They are convinced. And they will speak to us later on this morning and tell us about how the Lord convinced them. If we're not saturated by the blood of Christ, if we're not consumed by him, if Jesus is not everything to us, then Isaiah's other words in chapter 59 and verse 11 are true for us. The prophet says, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words. Now that's the kind of appraisal we don't want to hear from the Lord. But dear friends, it would not be right or kind of me to not point this out this morning. It's glorious to recognise what God has done. But it's also right and proper for us to warn those who have not yet discovered life in Christ. And who are not yet covered by his blood. And his blood is more than sufficient to cover you. If you feel the conviction of those words that I just read from Isaiah 59. Then know that Christ's blood is more than enough for you. I wonder this morning if, if the COVID pandemic if the economic chaos that we see going on around us, if the hopelessness of the world and the brokenness of the world, whether it be conflicts going on in foreign lands, whether it be hate and divisiveness at home, whether it be all manner of afflictions, if that's brought you to your knees and if that has, has taken every last shred of hope away from you, know that there is hope in Christ. He is a great saviour. Dear friends, the gospel good news is that God loves sinners such as us with such a deep and abiding love. And though he will sift us, he will not ultimately let us go. Friends, if you're counting on good works this morning, then I can assure you they're not good enough unless they're 
Christ's works. Finally, godly work. The work of God, the work of Christ, is a transformed heart that is singularly devoted to the Lord. This is what Jesus wants the Ephesians to rediscover. He wants them to repent from their apathy and to rekindle their first love. This is the charge made against the church in verse 4, that they've lost their first love. And it's the point of Matt Redman's song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Coming back to the heart of worship. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it, when it's all about you. All about you, Jesus. You might think, how can you make singing songs to Jesus about anything else, anyone else than Jesus? Well, that's a very narrow view of worship, friend. Because worship is our whole lives. We can very easily come to church and sit for, sit for a worship service and sing quite wholeheartedly to Jesus. What do we do the rest of the week, 24-7? What do our lives say then about Jesus? Do we sound more like Isaiah 59? Or do we sound more like those, that heavenly choir singing praises to the Lamb, knowing his name, delighting in him? Those who alone know the words of the songs they're singing. Praise God. Friends, there's a great danger when we get sidetracked. This is the point of the message this morning. We want to be conquerors, not compromisers. There's a danger when we get sidetracked. We begin to make faith more about other things. How well we're performing in our duties. How well polished our knowledge of church doctrine is. Or by prioritising our careers or our hobbies or even our families. Any of those things can start to creep in and eclipse what ought to be the heart of our lives. Friends, if we begin to put any of these things, even seemingly worthy, godly things, before Christ, if our main focus and our walk is no longer on Him, His teachings and His will for our lives, then we'll begin to drift off like the church at Ephesus, losing our first love. Jesus says that this isn't something that happens accidentally. Notice, this isn't something that happens accidentally. We don't lose our love for Jesus by mistake. Look at the charge that Jesus makes. In the NIV it says that we forsake our first love. The ESV says that we abandon or give up Jesus for something else. This is a willful thing. Sure, it can happen gradually can happen slowly, has to be almost difficult to notice as it begins to slide. But friends, let's be honest about our desires and our priorities. Are we really choosing Christ each day? In the first century, the compromise with the culture of imperial cult practice and sexual immorality was a strong temptation for sure. But nobody was being forced to do it. Similarly for us, peer pressure and going with the cultural flow is the easy option. It creates less hassle for us for promotions at work, maybe less ridicule in the schoolyard. 
But we definitely, we definitely choose whether to stand up for Christ or to bow the knee to Caesar. Sadly, in our times, the Christian ethics and principles that our nation has for so long been shaped by are increasingly under determined attack. And one of the reasons it is so quickly and easily happening is because the church, which has been a key battleground, is herself giving up its first love. That's the reality, friends. The church, which for so long has been a key battleground in this great spiritual war, has been so quick to give up our first love and exchange it for a, a poor substitute. Friends, I know I'm not faultless myself in this. Sometimes I take several paces off the mark. We're so blessed this morning to have Abby and Michael uh, here with us, to have their baptisms taking place, because they remind us of our first love. Abby and Michael are taking their steps of obedience in the afterglow of their saving encounters with Jesus. Saving encounter with Jesus, Michael. Saving encounter with Jesus, Abby. Basking in the afterglow of that first love, convinced that he is your Lord. Praise God. They're passionate about living for him and turning more and more of their lives over to his control and his will. Let's be thankful for this. Let's resolve to help them in that. But let's also take a firm grip on the word this morning and heed the warning that Jesus lovingly gives to the church at Ephesus. Jesus is not some unfair, monstrous God waving a big stick. He is lovingly reproving the church, giving them every opportunity and exhortation to rediscover their first love, to come back and bow the knee once again to Jesus Christ. The last thing that Jesus wants to do, friends, is to remove their lampstand, verse 5. Instead, they can wake up from their slumber, rediscover their deep and abiding love for the Lord, repent, remember from where they have fallen. That means remembering Jesus, who he is, his name, the pleasure in his presence, in that place where he, he is found. If we're his, then that's in our hearts as well. Remember Jesus' and the apostles' teaching, how we once lived in it, breathed it with everything that we have. And to do those works, those deeds again, the deeds prepared in advance by him for us to do and to walk in and to give him, ascribe him all the glory due to his name. Friends, Jesus closes by remembering, uh, sorry, by reminding the faithful at Ephesus that they have a helper. Did you notice that? Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit, this sevenfold Spirit, is speaking to the churches. The sevenfold Spirit is speaking to the church today as his truth is declared. 
friends, we do not fight this fight alone. And we are in a fight. Matters of faith are not optional. Like which, which cereal you're going to purchase at the supermarket. The trouble with consumerism is that we live and think like a consumer. But Christianity is not like that. It's Christ or chaos. That's the reality. We can't go out and just choose what kind of Christ. There's only one Christ. It's the one revealed in Scripture. It's the glorious one who rules over all, revealed in chapter 1. And he is speaking to us. Let's listen. He has sent a great and mighty helper, the very Holy Spirit of God. And he will empower our journey with and for Christ. A journey where we taste the fruit of the tree of life itself. Even here and now, as his conquerors, not his compromisers. One final comment I want to make. You know these lampstands? Sometimes when you read scripture and you read some of these archaic references and you think, oh, it's just, you know, slightly antiquated, doesn't really bear much reality to us today. Sometimes it helps us just to understand a bit more. The lampstands in the temple were designed to resemble the tree of life. Did you know that? The lampstands that stood in the temple looked like the tree of life as a symbol of the fact that God was with his people. Loads of the symbolism of the temple is about God with his people. Christ has sent his Holy Spirit to us to be with his people. If we have the Holy Spirit, dear friends, we have access to the tree of life. We're sitting in its branches. We're tasting the fruit. Day by day, we're catching a glimpse of what lies ahead for us for all eternity. Praise the Lord. I want to say to you this morning, if Jesus, our first love, remains our life's love, then we, his church, will flourish as one of his shining lampstands. So I hope you want to be a lampstand this morning. Or at least you want to inhabit one in the branches of his glorious tree of life. Shall we bow our heads in prayer?